It's time for us to uh, get started. Uh, welcome to class. We're glad you're here. We appreciate your presence, and we hope that your time here will be helpful to you. I, I always try to remind uh, this class, uh, because we don't take time to particularly talk about uh, other things before getting to the text, but be sure and listen to the announcements, get a bulletin, uh, make sure you're aware of things that will be going on uh, shortly and a little bit later, and uh, make uh, any notes that you need to make on those things. We're going to take uh, a minute uh, or two to pray together before we get to our lesson. Father in heaven, we're thankful today that we can approach you in confidence, not only knowing that you are God, but that you are good, that you listen to our prayers that you hear us in our petitions, and that you have concern for those things that are a part of our life. Uh, like David, Father, we must admit that we sin. We're not happy about that. We don't want it to continue. But we know that through our confession and change of life, that you are a forgiving God, that you allow us opportunities to do good even after we failed. We ask that forgiveness. Uh, we ask for wisdom that we might be stronger and more resistant to temptation, and that our lives might because of the way they live, bring glory to you. This morning we're also grateful that we're a part of a body of believers, that we have an opportunity to share fellowship with each other, that we can care for each other, to be happy with each other, to weep with each other, and to share all those things that make our brotherhood special. Father, we ask you to bless this church with uh, the desire to grow spiritually and numerically. We ask you to bless each of our families, bless those with children as they instruct them, Bless those with difficulties and bless caregivers. And we pray that we might encourage and support each other in all of that. And now thank you, Father, for opportunities to study together, help our study to be profitable to each of us, and help us to draw closer to you through it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Last week, we, uh, lo we were looking at uh, Psalm 51. This week, we're looking at Psalm 32. Uh, as we continue our brief study of the Psalms, we're not looking at all of the Psalms, of course. We're, 
we have picked out some of the psalms and have uh, decided that per week we'll only cover one psalm. We noted last week that Psalm 51 is one of seven uh, penitential psalms. We categorize them that way as penitential. In other words, psalms that deal directly with uh, sin and forgiveness. And the writer in each of these cases, and we attribute most of these to David directly and some indirectly, the writer recognizes his sin and seeks forgiveness and God grants it. Psalm 32, like Psalm 51, is one of those penitential psalms. It's generally thought that this psalm was also composed as was Psalm 51, following the time of David's sin with Bathsheba. When we studied Psalm 51, we took the time to go back to 2 Samuel and look at that sin and the aftermath of it and how much deeper David got into trouble because of not admitting his sin initially. Uh, We're not going to go back over that again. And as is true with a number of the Psalms, we can't be absolutely certain that David wrote this, but we can certainly see why the superscription gives his name and why it is almost universally, as far as I know, attributed to him. We can see how it would fit into that time period. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something. I want you to finish this. I want you to finish it out loud. Okay? It's one chance you get to talk out loud. <laughs> no, that's two chances. David and... Some of you don't have voices. David and... I'm proud of some of you. Because the typical response is David and Bathsheba. And one writer has said that may say more about us than it does about David. If you said David and Goliath, good. Because David certainly was a hero in that case and honored God, showed himself courageous. You could have said David and Saul. Because David also during that period certainly showed himself honorable. There there was more than one time that David could have killed Saul, who was trying to kill him, but he didn't. In fact, he insisted that men not take vengeance against Saul. Very good spirit. Could have said David and Jonathan. That beautiful picture of friendship and love between two men. One of whom could have been jealous of David, but wasn't. And so, and so there, there are a number of situations we... We do sometimes think of David as committing that great sin. And it was great. It it was dishonoring to God. It was embarrassing to David. More than embarrassing, painful. And had repercussions for a long time. The, The superscription of this psalm attributes it to David. And... And and it does not say under what circumstances or when it was written. But there's something else in the superscription in your Bible 
And it says, if you're using the New King James Version, a contemplation. If you're using the English Standard Version, it says a mascal. Mascal is an English word that comes from the Hebrew word mascal. And that term appears 13 times uh, before individual psalms. This is one of them. 12 others, and literally uh, mascal in Hebrew means to make wise or prudent, to have success or skill. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they call it a psalm of understanding. And, and that may help us to appreciate more of what we see in verse 8 of this psalm. When you look at Psalm 51 and 32 together, you read them both, you, you may get the idea that Psalm 32 actually comes later than Psalm 51. Now, you recognize that as the Psalms are put together here, they're not listed in any chronological order necessarily. Uh, we don't understand exactly how they were assembled, but we know they were assembled. And we, we don't know the time frame of all of them, but I think you would get that idea because in Psalm 51, David is expressing more guilt and pleading for God's mercy. In Psalm 32, there is clear indication he has received God's mercy. He has found it and he's grateful for it. And so I think from a time perspective, Psalm 51, if David is the author, was written first and Psalm 32 second. Now maybe it would be helpful before we look at Psalm 32, the 11 verses that make up the psalm, to, to try to summarize it first and then look at its individual parts. And incidentally, I, I would maybe recommend that in your reading and study, that might be a good idea of looking at the psalms. You couldn't do it with every psalm. I don't think Psalm 119 would lend itself much to this. But some of the shorter psalms, maybe after you've read the psalm, in your own thinking, in your own words, maybe write down the summary of that psalm before you look at each individual part of it. I tried to do that with this psalm, and I came up with four statements uh, not necessarily just four sentences, but four statements. And let, let's see if you would have done the same thing, maybe if you were doing it. Number one, the psalm begins by stating the blessedness or the joy of forgiveness. That's the outset of the psalm. And then secondly, this state of joy or forgiveness or blessedness could not have been refused, could not have been reached by refusing to admit guilt. And delay of refusing that guilt only causes agony. Third, confession brought forgiveness and confidence of future protection and deliverance by God. And fourth, David, and I'm going to throw this in but come back to it later. Some people think it's God, not David. I'm going to say David. I'll tell you why in a little bit. Offers to instruct and to teach others what he has learned. David 
also cautions against stubbornness and contends that the results of wickedness are certain, the results of righteousness are equally certain. Now that's my summary. You might have done it differently. Let's look closely at the psalm itself. And we start with the idea of the joy of forgiveness. Verses 1 and 2. I'm using the New King James Version. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. David understood exactly what he had done and what God had done. And he had committed, and it's interesting here, transgression, which is crossing the line, uh, trespassing God's will. He had sinned, we missed the mark, gone on the wrong path. He had been involved in iniquity. The base idea of iniquity is to be twisted or crooked, and therefore it indicates wickedness. People who are twisted or crooked are wicked people. And what that tells you when you know those words, and incidentally, those are the very words of Psalm 51. The same three words are used in Psalm 51. And so you see that connection perhaps. Transgression, sin, iniquity, they're all used in both Psalms. David didn't try to, what we call, sugarcoat his actions, does he? he? This is an honest admission of what he's done. Now, I recognize, and, and I'm going to maybe jump a little ahead of this, uh, of myself on this. Blessed is he, and then in verse 2, blessed is the man... David is saying that because generally, of course, that is true. But David's writing here about himself. You see that in the later verses. So, so David can make the general statement, but it also specifically applies to him. If this is really about the Bathsheba-Uriah incident, David could not have possibly found enough words to fully describe his wrong actions. I believe he's struggling in both of the Psalms to try to really get it all out as how he recognizes the depth of his sins, what he had done. And again, I'm jumping ahead, but I want to just note this with you. That's not really a common approach to somebody confessing sin. It is so easy to minimize what we've done when we've done wrong. How about this? I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Or, yeah, oh, well, you know, I recognized I sinned. That doesn't sound very contrite, does it? You cannot read this and, and appreciate David, like you should, if you don't see how sincerely and painfully he recognized what he had done. Now, notice what God had done. He had forgiven, that is, removed 
carried away David's sin. He had covered, put out of sight, and hidden. Incidentally, there are two different ways to cover sin, man's way and God's way. And sometimes man's way is to cover it by hiding it. God's way is to cover it by forgiving it. In other words, not making it be there anymore. For God to cover sin is to put it out of sight. And he had not imputed this to David's account. That's an accounting term. He didn't mark it down. He didn't record it to David's account because he had blotted it out. We learned that last week from Psalm 51. Well, not only David, but all people can experience the same blessedness, joy, delight, if certain conditions are met and they are forgiven. Uh, You notice in verse 2, and this blessed, this happy, joyful person is a person in whom in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know what deceit means. Trickery and trying to pull something over on, on some, put something over on somebody. Trying to, to make something seem as if it is not. David saying, in essence, blessed is the man who is honest with God. You know, it's terrible not to be honest with ourselves. But it is really terrible not to be honest with God. Not being honest with yourself hurts us. Not being honest with God condemns us. Okay, then David from that beginning, and so in essence you're almost seeing the conclusion at the beginning because he's talking about happiness and joy and so on of the forgiven person. Then David goes back to talk about the torture of trying to be silent about your sins. Verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Ms. Pat, see, I told you I was going to talk about myself. Bones grew old through, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. You know, we don't really know. We don't have any accurate statement of how long David tried to get away with his sins. And incidentally, plural, more than one. Sin with Bathsheba, sin of having Uriah killed. You could say the sin of deceitfulness even with his commander. Here's what I want you to do with Uriah. Put him in the hottest part of the battle and then you withdraw. Let him be killed. And when it comes to the king's notice, we'll just dismiss it. That's deceit. Now, David seems to indicate, verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Some period of time before this discovery that Bathsheba was pregnant, they're going to have his child, and then all of this attempt to try to get Uriah to be thought to be the father of this child, and then to have him killed. Some time passed. I think a lot of, if you're thoughtful about this, we ask ourselves, 
why it's so hard to believe about David. He, he was so good in so many ways. He, you, you read other Psalms and you are just so impressed with his devotion to God, his love for God, his sincerity. How could David do this? Well, he was human, for one thing. Humans do things that sometimes we don't even think we're capable of doing as far as wrongdoing. Why did David hide it? Why didn't he immediately confess it? Fear, you think? Foolishness, thinking he could get away with it? I, I don't know why he tried to conceal it, but he did, and he is not the only one in history who has done that. He describes how he suffered. He describes it in figurative but graphic terms. David had old bones. That's what I was kidding about a while ago. Some of us know about old bones. Uh, and, and in David's case, he's way, he feels like he's wasting away. In, in some of the other Psalms, we may see this in just a moment. Some of the other Psalms, David uses this exact kind of terminology. Um, look, look at, hold your place here, but look back at Psalm 31 for just a moment. Verse 9 and 10. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Look at, look at Psalm 38. Incidentally, another of the penitential psalms. Verses 2 and 3. For your arrows pierce me deeply and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Look at verse 5. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Look at Psalm 39, verses 10 and 11. Psalm 39, 10 and 11. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct me for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. David not only recognizes his sin, but guilt really presses him down, doesn't it? God's hand is pushing him. It's shoving him down. And because of that, his strength is sapped like like. Like what happens in the drought of summer. Now, now, don't you deny it, this past week when it was scorching hot, you kept thinking, man, how are we going to get through this? <laughs> you know, it saps our strength. You can go outside for just a few minutes and all of a sudden, besides sweating, you're just worn out. It, that, that's what David describes in 4B. My vitality is turned into the drought of summer. Israel could be really hot at times. Now, God is not just withholding His blessings from David. He is actually causing grief to David. S some people may mistakenly think, well, okay, 
I'm living in sin, and that means that God's not going to give me everything that he generally gives me. No, it's worse than that, folks. The New Testament teaches that God chastens as well as blessing. And so God can and does and has and will create grief for people who won't admit their sins. Some people say, I don't understand how, you know, why I feel so terrible. Well, what is the hand of God in that? Next we see the benefit of confession, verses 5 through 7. Again, going back to the past, I acknowledged, past tense, my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then there's that little word, selah, S-E-L-A-H, which we are sometimes confused about. We some. We generally think it's a reverential pause. David has reached a point where he needs to stop just so it sinks in. Maybe for himself, but also for others as well. When David confessed his sin, which he finally did, he did so without excuse. He did so without qualification. He did so in complete honesty. And that's really the key, folks. If you try to confess your sins to God by saying, God, I know I did wrong, but you know what kind of environment I live in. Isn't that really saying, I'm not fully responsible for that? Or, or God, I know I mistreated someone, but you, you understand how hard they are to deal with, don't you? That's like saying, I'm not fully responsible. David is saying, I am absolutely responsible for my sin. You know, what we see here is a mental decision that leads to an action. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I told myself, I need to do this. David had to convince himself that he could and should confess his sin. Not always a mark of something wrong with yourself to talk to yourself. <laughs> I know we make fun sometimes. That guy talks to himself. Well, sometimes that's important to talk to yourself. Remember the woman in Matthew 9? Turn there just a moment. I know you do. Matthew 9 tells about a timid woman. Verses 21 and 22 20 and 22, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garments. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Now you can criticize her if you want and say, well, boy, she's superstitious if she thinks that just touching the garment of Jesus will make herself well. Well, let me ask you this, if you want to accuse her of superstition, how did that work out? Jesus, verse 21, 2, turned around and, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. 
You had enough faith to believe that if you just touched me, you would be well, and you are well. Good time to talk to yourself. And the result of David's confession is God forgave him. Because that's what God is, a forgiving God. God does not want to hold grudges against you. He does not want to punish you. He wants you to be right. Because you can receive blessings when you're right. And now he adds for the benefit of others that the godly shall pray and receive what he has himself received. God will protect, he will preserve, he will be our hiding place. I tell you what, when you get old you forget stuff. Capitalized, and that's the translators telling you we believe this is God's eye. But, but others believe that it's God, I mean that it's David. David saying, and, and he's not doing this independently of God, incidentally. He's doing it for God's glory. I will instruct you, that is others, in the way you should go. And what David is, I think, saying is that he can help others as he has learned. Either way you look at that, the situation provides for instruction. Here is the right path to take. And incidentally, when you, when you are working with someone and you have to show the right path, you often have to be also brave enough to show the wrong path. This is the right path. This is not the right path. This is not the right path. And there is guidance, my eye. Does that mean insight? Understanding, uh, likely so. There is, the situation provides for an opportunity for caution. Don't be like a horse. This is not a, this is not a family pet. This is not a domesticated horse, we might say, or mule. This is an animal that would be somewhat wild, maybe. Maybe you possessed it, but like a mule, it's stubborn. And you can't just call it and say, hey, come here, and it obeys you. It has to be coaxed and pulled and maybe even pushed into obeying. Don't be like that, David said. Don't be stubborn as a mule. <laughs> and then there's a warning in verse 10, which says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. If you remain in a state of wickedness, you're going to get a lot of trouble in your life. Sorrow is going to come. On the other hand, mercy is going to come to those who trust God. That is inevitable. Sorrows come to those who don't change, won't admit sin, won't seek God's forgiveness. Mercy comes to those who do. And then he closes the psalm much like he begins it. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you've made the right decision and you have confessed your sins and God has taken care of them, be happy about it. Now, I'm going to notice a couple of observations with you, but first I'll just open the floor. Anybody want to say something, ask something, comment? Anybody? Yes, sir. 
many years ago, we were we memorized Psalms, and it really means a lot to you. Yeah. You got it in your heart. You got it in your mind. Right. Right. Well, one of the things that probably has complicated that some is we switch translations a lot. <laughs> we have to start all over again in some cases. I, I was just talking to somebody recently who said that, and a preacher who had been preaching a long time with one translation and then tried to change to something else. And he said, my mind was always going back to the translation I used previously. That's a good thought, though. We, we don't do much memorization of any scripture. We really don't. We, we used to have drills and all kinds of things in classes, but we don't do that much. Yeah. That, that may be true, too. The, trying to be too simple. Too simple. Um, anybody else have an observation? I'm gonna, I have some things. Edie? I think I think the general consensus of understanding is that you better do it while you can. Don't don't wait too long to go ahead and get right with God because you're just delaying unnecessarily. And and I'm going to mention that in just a minute. That but that's a good point. Uh, if 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 you put it off, you have to ask yourself why. What, what benefit are you getting by putting it off? And, and a lot of times we say, well, I, I don't want to be embarrassed. Well, God knows. Let, let me mention these observations quickly. When we sin, and we know when we do often, we may have sins we're not aware of. A lot of our sins are sins we know we've committed. When we sin, we have a choice. And we can try to deny it by trying to hide it or minimize it, or we can confess it and find forgiveness. Which sounds more reasonable to you? <laughs> I think you know what's more reasonable. Secondly, let's talk about guilt for a moment. Guilt hurts. But actually, in a larger sense, guilt is good for us. If we didn't feel guilty, we might not be driven to try to do something about the guilt. You know, it, you, you may have known someone that has done something wrong and maybe you think that person is so hard and you say, he just doesn't have any conscience. He doesn't even feel guilty about it. That's a terrible state to be in. And, and guilt is good if it forces us to see ourselves as we really are and makes us want to get out of that guilt. Now, people deal with guilt in all kinds of ways. There have been plenty of people in life who have felt guilty and killed themselves. That They thought that was the way out. It really was the way out. They felt guilt and have said, maybe if I just stall long enough, this will go away. I, I'll forget it. Not going to happen. Number three, the longer we wait, and this is Edie's point here, to get our lives right, the more unnecessary pain we cause ourselves. You know, you can imagine. Let's suppose you got a really serious thorn in your finger. What are you going to do? You're going to say, well, I'll just wait a few months and maybe this will get better. You want to get that thing out. 
And, and maybe, maybe that's the reason we don't do that with sin is we don't see it as deadly as it really is. We, we don't understand how sin offends God and how it separates us from God and how it can cause us to lose our souls. And that's because the world has dumbed it down, haven't they? A mistake, uh, everybody sins, don't be concerned about this, you're not any worse than anybody else. All those things sound good, but they're phony. Sin hurts. And then, when forgiveness comes from God, we ought to rejoice in it and move on. I think it's one of the saddest things that I've seen in all the years I've been working with the church to see somebody ask for forgiveness, maybe publicly. They've done something wrong. Or in their private lives, they've done something wrong and they confess it and they, they want to be forgiven. And then they go on as if they're still full of sin. They, they don't accept God's forgiveness. And some, some have said, sometimes it's harder for us to forgive ourselves than it is for God to forgive us. That shouldn't be true. And, and when we've done wrong and we're honest with God and we seek His forgiveness and we know we're forgiven, brother, life ought to be better. If it's not better, then you're not really feeling like you're forgiven. And if you're not feeling like you're forgiven, you need to say, why don't I understand that I've been forgiven? Was I not sincere? Now, it's possible that some people have done like King Saul. Saul, more than any other individual, used the statement, I have sinned. But when you read Saul's life, I don't know that Saul really meant, and I'm sorry, he just meant, I've sinned. I, yeah, I've sinned. I've done wrong. He didn't intend to change. And, and when someone confesses wrongdoing, but he doesn't really intend to change, then it's terrible. I knew a preacher, and I've told this story before, but you've forgotten. I know you have. Some of you haven't heard. I knew a preacher years ago who stole another man's wife. He literally stole she was a member of the church, incidentally. He divorced, he got rid of his wife so he could get another wife. And some of his preacher friends asked him, how in the world can you do this? How can you do this? You know what God teaches about this. You know what he said? I'm just going to ask God for forgiveness and then I'm going to stay married to her. Easy solution, right? What he really meant was, I'm not really sorry at all, and I'm not really asking God to forgive me. I'm just going to go through a motion to look like I'm sorry, and I'm not going to change. Well, he fooled himself. He didn't fool God. I'm certain of that. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes. Let me notice a couple of things with you. The other penitential psalms. Look at Psalm 6 for just a moment. We don't have time to look at all of the, the details, but... but, but Mark these down if you haven't already done so. Psalm 6, Psalm 38, 102, 130, and 143. Those are the penitential psalms beside the two we studied. Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. Does that sound familiar? My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? 
Verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. David may have written that at an obvious different time, I think, because there were times when he had a lot of enemies, including his own son. Look at Psalm 38. We, we looked at that for just a moment this morning. Psalm 38. O Lord, do, begins, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. We saw that. Verse 6, I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. There's a man that's really suffering. And suffering because of the recognition of what sin will do. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate you coming to class.